Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. This is the podcast for merchant sales reps and industry professionals who want to understand the industry and learn how to grow their portfolio. Today, we talked with Brandy Elich, Director of Partner Acquisitions at Crosscheck. And then James will talk about portfolio buyout and should you sell for one or multiple processors. Now, let's jump into the Insider's Report with Patty, where she talks about the power of ACH payments. The market for card payments is huge and growing. The top eight acquirers alone handled nearly one trillion credit and debit card payments last year. Every one of those companies reported organic growth and at least three reported double-digit growth. Yet the Federal Reserve, which regularly surveys consumers on their payment choices, reports that cash still dominates the consumer payments mix. Among consumers surveyed by the Fed in 2016, 31% of monthly transactions were paid using cash. Credit cards accounted for just 18% of monthly transactions and debit cards 27%. So clearly there are opportunities to move more transactions to credit, debit, and even prepaid debit cards. It's worth noting that consumer payment preferences, and by extension, merchant acceptance preferences, vary due to numerous factors. These include where they live, lifestyle preferences, income, age, and perhaps most importantly, what's being purchased. This last factor can also be key to merchant acceptance. For a business selling high-end items, jewelry and automobile sales, for example, card acceptance can be, expensive, can be an expensive proposition. Check authorization and guarantee services are seen as more affordable options. Membership, subscription-based businesses, meanwhile, may find ACH payments a good fit. The important thing to remember is that merchants are in business to sell things. As Paul Green, founder of the Green Sheet, related to me many years ago, merchants don't care how they're paid. They'd accept puka shells if those had value attached. With this in mind, I thought it worthwhile to spend a few minutes explaining how two alternatives to card payments work, the ACH and the check system. Well, Patty, actually those numbers really kind of surprised me, the, yeah. uh, the cash percentage. It, it surprised it's me as lot. well. It's a lot. And the other thing that, that surprised me is that in terms of total volume and value. Mm -hmm. The volume of electronic payments, that being cards and ACH, right, right. the volume in, in number of sheer transactions is higher, but in terms of value, hmm. is only hovers around 30%. Yeah. You know what I think is so interesting? I wonder if the trend of, you know, we've talked a lot about cash discounting, surcharging, things like that. You know, the interesting thing about that, you know, cash discounting on the face of it, it looks like is encouraging more cash payments. Mm -hmm. But I kind of wonder if it'll almost have the reverse effect to where I wonder if some of these businesses that for convenience, they would like to take cards and things like that, mm -hmm. and that their customers would be willing to pay that way, but it's not economically viable for them to pay the fees. Right. Maybe some of them will say, hey, you know, we haven't offered these other forms of payment in the past, but now that we can pass that cost on to the customer, let them choose how to pay, you know, maybe they'll start doing that. I think that's a very good. I, I think that's a very good strategy. Um, it might be a way to make it more affordable for those guys. I helped a rep. I think it was like two or three uh, weeks ago. Uh, it was really shocking to me. He set a merchant up on cash discounting that was a doctor that does um, plastic surgery, things huh. like that. And so, like his average transaction was like fifteen thousand dollars. Wow. Um, and again, it was the situation where 
he'd never he didn't take cards before but a lot of his high-end clients have these American Express rewards cards all these things where mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. they want to use their card for their plastic surgery mm-hmm. but he'd never taken it before and, and the pitch that the rep used was hey let them choose if they want to use their card they pay for it he, he should he should talk to my dentist I have a dentist who refuses to take cards yeah and you know I had a lot of extensive dental work done recently and he was harassing me like hey right. come on I'm like dude Right. I, I owe you thousands of dollars. Take a credit card, and I'll pay you today. All right, exactly. If you want me to pay by cash or check, you're just going to have to wait. Wait a little while. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said for that, particularly as medical expenses become, in that exact example, mm-hmm. as medical expenses become more expensive and insurance copayments yeah. don't cover. Right. Um, you know, there might be, interesting. be. Yeah, I think there's an option. Maybe there's a whole other market there of people that aren't accepting payments that that would. just might yeah be an interesting thing to see so yeah so let's hear some more about this ACH stuff this okay. is interesting so so the ACH is a store and forward payment system ACH payments can be credit transactions think direct deposit or debit transactions two good examples of this for our discussion are automatic payments for example for recurring payments like mm-hmm. dues and so forth and decoupled debit decoupled debit is most commonly issued by retailers. Target's probably the most obvious example. Sure. Um, and they're, they're used to initiate debits against a cardholder's checking account. Transactions are captured at the point of sale and get sent to a bank or processor, which in turn batches the transactions for processing through the ACH, usually on a da- daily basis. <laughs> the ACH network can also be used to process e-commerce transactions. It's been a big push by NACHA, the rules group for, right. for the ACH, to try to make this a preferred e-payment method. Right. Um, whereas historically, the ACH processing cycle, you know, from the initiation of the payment to the final um, receipt of final and irrevocable funds, was two to three days. But over the past year, NACHA has implemented these same-day ACH processing hmm. cycles yeah. in an effort to sort of uh, move the, the network closer to a real-time sure. Um, sure. payment network. Merchants like ACH payments because they carry fixed transaction fees, which can be substantially less than credit and debit card fees, particularly on large ticket items. Yeah. Another advantage is that the ACH connects every financial institution in the country, and there's a lot more Americans with checking accounts than with debit or credit cards. Yeah. Especially yeah. credit cards. I, I think right. debit cards, a lot of them would have it with their checking well, account. Well, you know what's interesting? I mean, with ACH, one of the other big benefits is – you know, a lot of businesses are moving more towards recurring payments. Right. And, you know, when you have now Visa MasterCard have taken some steps to solve this problem. But when you get somebody's credit card, so like our instant quote tool this is a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest problems we have is like, oh, we got to keep reaching out to subscribers when their card's going to uh, right. expire. Right. Exactly. So Visa MasterCard have worked out. There are some things you can do now to to keep that from happening. But, you know, to where it'll actually switch you to the new card. Mm-hmm. But, of course, with ACH. No problem. When you get the information once, as long as that account's open, then you're, you're good. Cool, right? And I mean, I don't know about you, but numerous times over the last couple of years, either my card's been replaced because of fraudulent activity or right. it's just been reissued. And then I get all these notices, oh, you have to go in oh, and change yeah. all so this. It's so frustrating. It's frustrating. Yeah. I, I, there's a couple of them. You know, QuickBooks, I think, is an example. I use QuickBooks. Mm-hmm. They insist on taking my fees out of my debit card. Now, they're already linked to the ACH. Why aren't they? Right, exactly. Right? Yep. And I got one of those notices a couple of weeks ago. Oh, we're going to, you know, yeah. you, you can't pay your dues because your credit card mm-hmm. expired. It's interesting, though. I think for that same reason, though, consumers are much more, what's the word, cautious, I guess, about sharing their ACH information. Yeah, I think you're right. And and that's, you know, like, for instance, we had that... Um, 
with uh, we built a self storage uh, gateway recently, mm-hmm. uh, like a SaaS you know solution, and we had the ability for so the tenants of the storage units go on there and set up their auto pay. Right. So they can do ACH or credit. Mm-hmm. Nobody did ACH uh, out of really? hundreds, and and, the, and because I think they. They feel like if they share their card, well, they can always cancel that card or whatever. Mm. But to move your bank account, oh, that's true. A little there's, tricky. There's a, and if you want to, like, like sometimes you know you have a subscription service, you don't really use it. Right. You want it to kind of wear, you know. You don't want to call and cancel it, but right. you want to get rid of it. Want to get rid yeah, of it, sure. and that that could see where that would be yeah. the problem. So yeah, from an ISO or an MLS perspective, ACH transactions aren't going to bring in a ton of revenue, but it's a potentially great value, particularly for e-commerce. Big value, you know, yeah, a large absolutely. ticket, recurring payments, like we said. So let me talk a few minutes about checks. Despite predictions to the contrary, checks continue to be a preferred method of value exchange for consumers and businesses alike. The Fed, again, because the Fed's the, the one place where all this data is, right. is accumulated, the Fed reports that U.S. households wrote an average of 7.1 checks in 2016. Now that's down from 19 checks. Oh, and that's per month? month? Per month. No. Okay. So in 2000, we were writing about 19 checks a month. Now we're down to seven checks a month. Okay. But businesses are down from 66 in 2000 to 24. Hmm. Okay. So 24 checks. And, yeah. and I've read other studies that say, particularly among small and mid-sized businesses, mm-hmm. it's probably close to 40%. Yeah. Um, one reason for the continued use of checks has been the Check 21 Act and continued advances in electronic image capture and exchange technologies. Today, according to the Fed, better than 99%, I think it's 99.91% of checks written clear between banks as electronic files, typically in a day or two. Hmm. And it's not unheard of, for, particularly in the B2B space, for checks to clear on the same day basis. Moving checks to an electronic clearing mechanism makes check acceptance a good option for some merchants. They can capture images of checks at the point of sale or in the back office and instantaneously deposit the transactions to the banks, thereby eliminating the need to bundle checks up and trundle sure. them off to the bank once a day or once a week. This electronification of checks has also breathed new life into check verification and guarantee services. Check verification occurs at the point of sale and involves queries against databases of information about check writers and or checking accounts. If the account isn't closed and the check writer is deemed good, you know, no history of bad checks or anything. The business knows they can accept the the item. A business's risk tolerance, of course, plays a role here. Often these services can provide risk scores that help them decide, okay, you know, a score of 1 to 10, with 10 being the safest, 1 being the least. Maybe your risk tolerance says you'll accept a check in the 5 to 7 range. Right. Um, grocers are probably the most common um, users of check verification services. Um, auto repair yeah. shops are another oh, yeah, big definitely. one. Big ticket items, obviously. Mm-hmm. And with grocers, a, a lot of grocers that I've talked to over the years even say, you know, especially in small towns and stuff, my guys aren't going to b- bounce checks on me because they have to come back here again. Right. And it's, you know. Right. So verification, of course, can be used alone or sold in tandem with check guarantee services. Using a guarantee service, check information is captured at the point of sale, usually, generally using a micro-reader right. or a uh, check image scanner that's at- attached to the um, POS device, and, an, and the authorization occurs. Then for an added fee, the authorizing firm also guarantees the payment and handles all the back-end collection hassles should the check bounce. 
Sure. Businesses that make a good fit for check guarantee include automotive sales, the automotive aftermarket, home furnishings, veterinarians and medical offices, and home furnishings. So in conclusion, I'd say that check authorization and guarantee services may not be a fit for all merchants, but there are some that will find these services do carry value. So it's a good idea to have at least have ACH and check services as an option in your portfolio of offerings. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about, uh, thinking back, I think one of the very first merchants I ever sold was an auto repair place. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him, and uh, he had had several bad checks that were, you know, that were written. Right. Um, and for an auto repair place, I mean, if they get two bad checks in a year, and they don't end up collecting on that money. They're hurting. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. I and mean, that could have been a couple thousand dollars. Right, right. Uh, so I was talking to him about the check conversion plus guarantee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty reasonable service. You know, the thing I think that uh, merchants I've dealt with, there's another one I'm thinking of that's a, one of my clients has a, a it's called the Antique Depot. And so they, they have all these little uh, flea market kind of mm-hmm. antique stores. Yeah, we have some around us. Okay. Sure. Mm-hmm. And they have one of these that I set up for them, check uh, conversion and guarantee. Right. And, you know, their biggest point of frustration is that, you know, the business checks especially, they, you know, they'll come through as, you know, because it'll, it'll tell you, are we willing to guarantee this check or not? Right. Those are the ones that almost always come through as no, they're not, they don't know, it's a business check, we don't right. know what this is. Um, and that's kind of frustrating. So I think it's a, it's a mixed bag. I think it's, you know, especially for people that are taking a lot of checks from consumers. Right. It can be very, very valuable. Very valuable. Yeah. Right. And I think on a, on the business side, I mean, really, you're, I don't think you're going to get that many bad checks from businesses. I mean, it's a felony. So, right. isn't it? Or it's a, or it's a well, something. it depends it's on a, how big it is. It's, it's a criminal but, offense. But it is a criminal offense. Yeah. Right. right. And, and, and also, when you're a business and you're doing business with other businesses, do you really want to? Right. Yeah. I just don't think you want to screw them over. Right. Um, but I had a friend years ago, and this is you know, probably 20 years now, but he had one of those stores that um, installs stereo systems in cars. Mm, okay. You know, t- high-end sure. stereo systems. Yeah. And he, I was amazed how many checks a day he was taking in. Yeah. You know, but at the time, it was sort of like, look. That's how people paid for it. That's how people paid for it. And he's like, you know, if I, I absolutely have to have a check guarantee service before I even have a credit card service. Right. Right. Um, and I think a lot of that was because, let's face it, you know, if you're going to put a high-end stereo in your car, you're probably saved for it. And, yeah, you know, you sure. don't want to have to pay for it down the yep. line. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing, too, it could also be a, a demographic thing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my clients has a hair and nail uh, salon. It's actually right. two different businesses that right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they, in the area they're at, they have a lot of elderly. Right. And checks. Checks. They get just tons and tons. And he's, the reason he put it in place is because... He said that he just didn't like dealing with the customer, you know, like... If something happens. Yeah, if it's a bad check. He doesn't sure. want to call some 81-year-old lady and tell her her check bounced, you right, know? Right, So he was like, check conversion plus guarantee, saved him all the time. He had one month where he had... This is a hair and nail salon. One month, they end up with $3,000 in bad checks. Whoa. That would, so, that would like, torpedo a, some of those And companies. he said, "Why well, now I got to reach out to, you know, 30 of my elderly customers and right. tell them they're, you know, and again, a lot of times they didn't even know their, their kids were doing some of the account or whatever. Right. So he said when he outsourced that, he loved it because then he could tell people, oh, they didn't, they didn't approve your checks. You need to check your bank account. But if they right. did approve it, then he knew he would never have to deal with that again. If it was bad, the other, they would reach out. And I think that's such a huge issue for someone, especially yeah. the small businesses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great, Patty. Thank you for that one. That was good, good information. Thanks. Appreciate it. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com. CC Sales Pro is the leader in merchant sales training and creator of instantquotetool.com. 
the quickest way to provide your merchants with an accurate estimate on the spot. Visit us today to start your free 30-day trial or inquire about our branded ISO solutions. All right, our first question today comes from Chris. Great question, one that I get asked a lot. Is there a way or a formula to roughly figure out what my personal portfolio is worth as a buyout? Well, Patty, I'm sure there's a lot of different opinions on this, and a lot of it depends on the size of the portfolio. Of course. Right? Um, you know, I would say for an individual rep with a portfolio of less than $10,000 a month in residual, 18 to 24x is going to be probably an industry average. I think that sounds that sounds fair. Yeah. yeah. So I helped a rep recently do a $10,000 a month portfolio for 230000 So that was a 23x. But the other big thing, too, is they have to keep in mind, do they want to get all of their money up front? Mm-hmm. Then it's going to be lower. Right. Or are you willing to take, you know, I I did one uh, three or four months ago with Cutter Financial uh, on an old portfolio I had, and I sold it for, I got, I think, 19x or 20x up front. Uh-huh. But then I got another 6x over the next two years. Two years. Right. That's that's very common. It's the so two 26 year, right? X, you right, know, right. but again, there it's like, you know, I traded, I, I wanted terms instead of price. So I, I, you know, I've got to get my money over the longer term, but it's fine. I don't care. I didn't need it th at that time anyway. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of rep where you, where I see a lot of reps make big mistakes with this is uh, a lot of processors now are figuring this out. And what they're doing is, you know, right before Christmas, the holidays, right. They, there's actually a processor. I won't say the name of it. They literally send checks to their reps. Oh, real? Uh huh. A live check. Uh huh. Now it's usually a twelve to fifteen x buyout, and but if the rep goes and cashes the check, then they've completed the buyout. They don't have to right. sign anything. It's right. just you know the agreement is if you go cash the check. So uh, I would say a general rule. Don't cash those checks. That's what I was just gonna say. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds uh, me of those old shop credit, around. <laughs> reminds me of those old credit card checks or the the home loan checks that you right. get, right? Yes, like, exactly. No, no, rip that up and shop around. Shop around, yeah. So shop around. Um, you know, but yeah, I think. And the other the other big one too is, and this is something a lot of reps miss is, who can you sell the portfolio to? Because mm -hmm. you have you have one of two things here, you know. If your processor may not allow you to sell the portfolio to an outside person, right. they may not allow you to sell it at all. Right. But you need to check on that. And so I, the funny thing is, I'm actually not against that. I know several processors that are like that. The only thing is, if that's the case, you've got to pre-negotiate your multiple mm -hmm. because you have no, there's no competition. There's nobody trying to buy it. Right. So when you go to sell it, you know, it's fine if you're, you know, if, if your processor, when you're signing the agreement with them, you should ask them that. Right. And if they say, we will not allow you to sell that to an outsider, then you say, okay, so if that's the case, then I want something in writing that I'm guaranteed to get at least a 24X. Right. Something like that. Um, and then the, the other one you'll get too is you'll get some processors that have the first right of refusal. That's mm -hmm. perfectly fine. Industry standard, I think that's, that's totally think. fine. Totally, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. and it's actually it actually works to your benefit because, uh, well, this Cutter Financial, though, perfect example. Um, the processor in that case had first right of refusal. Cutter made me an offer. I went to the processor, um, and the processor in that case was like, no, we don't want to match that. They just gone through a, a buyout merger themselves. Didn't have the extra cash that they really wanted to do a bunch of buyouts right now. It was a pretty big one. Mm -hmm. So you know. They, I went back to Cutter and they finished it up. Sometimes though, you'll take it to the processor, and I've had this happen before too, where they're like, "Oh, we'll we'll match it." Well, then it usually takes like two or three days mm -hmm. rather than a month, right? So it's nice when the processor matches it. Don't you also think, James, that there's also, uh, you know, in terms of 
a factor is sort of the neediness of the seller. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? You know, the, the, the I mean, they're like rule. sharks out there. They can smell right. that blood. Yeah, it's you like, you, you know, you're never going to get money when you need it. Right. Uh, and so, you know, and that's, and honestly, to me, that's more of just a discipline, an emotional discipline mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you, you know, in sales, you need that both for going out and selling in the field. If you appear desperate to a merchant, forget it. Yep. They're never going to buy. Never. Because you're going to smell like a scam. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing when you go to do a buyout. Yeah. You need to approach it as, oh, you know, no hurry, you know, no yeah. no biggie. Just just shopping around right. wondering if it's worth anything. And believe me, if you have a if you have a portfolio of any decent size, you know, larger than 5,000 a month, I mean, you, you know, that waiting and that emotional discipline will be highly rewarded yes. if you could just wait and be patient, mm-hmm. you know. And, it's like any investment, really. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Great question, Chris. Thanks for that one. Here's a great question from Janice. I'm going to summarize it a little bit, but the the gist of the question is, is it best to stick with one company, one processor, one ISO, whatever you want to call it? Should you sell for one company or should you sell for multiple companies? So, Patty, I've really changed my mind over the years. Uh, I started out, I would go out in the field and actually present myself as a payments broker. Uh-huh. That's how I would go out. You know, like just like an insurance broker, I've got five companies, I'll find you the best deal or whatever. Right. Um, problem I had with that was, for me, I really like having the influence at the processing company. Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, if I send five companies each two deals a month or three deals a month, then I'm nobody to anybody. If I send one company 15 deals a month, I'm a top agent. Uh-huh. And now I'm going to get, you know, trips and bonuses and they're going to help me out and give, you know, when I need that exception made on pricing or whatever, I'm going to have the ear of the right people. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's paid off. Now, I'm still not a believer in you know, total exclusivity because sometimes, you know, you're, maybe your processor doesn't work with a particular high risk type merchant right. or e-commerce thing or mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. But I personally am a really, really big believer in, you know, find a company that you believe in, that you trust, and that you have a, a real personal relationship with some of the top decision makers. Right. Um, earn that relationship with your sales um, and then stick with them. And then maybe 10% of your deals are going elsewhere, but the majority are going to one place to get that influence. I, I think you have a good point there, James. Um, but I'm just going to uh, play the naysayer for a moment yeah, sure. here. Because it strikes me also. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of merchants who say, look, you know, I go in like you, like a broker, like you used to go right. in. And they said, you know, because I can go into a store and I might not be able to get the best deal for them with my primary right. processor. Sure. You know, maybe my guy doesn't really do anything really special for shoe stores. Right. But sure. I have I have somebody else in my in with my a pocket. sales system or SaaS or something or something like that. Yeah. And and that's where I think the variety comes in. Yeah. Um. You know, and I've known I've known um, MLSs over the years who you know okay I'm gonna go just to pizza parlors this week and so sure. this is the processor I'm gonna be selling. Sure. Um. And it also helps, I think, that there's sometimes when people, I've heard this, heard stories about, you know, I go in, I'm going to sell to this diner, let's say, right? right? And this diner already did business with my processor and they didn't like it. Right. Oh, yeah. You definitely <laughs> are going to have that. Right? Yep. So you have to be yep. able to say, hey, you don't like, you know, X, Y, Z? Let me let me show you ABC. Sure. You got to have that alternative. And it's funny. I actually had a situation like that where my primary... There was another rep from that same company about three years before me in mm-hmm. my market. Mm-hmm. And so I had to have a secondary just to be able to go into those and be able to 
move those merchants if they were unhappy because some of them were still with that company, right? Which of course I can't sell. You know, they're it's already with them, right? Um, yeah, I, yeah. So you gotta have you have to have options. Yeah, I think options yeah. are, are helpful. I mean, I, sure. I, but I think your point is well taken. You know, there is something to be said for having, having that relationship. That relationship. Yeah, yeah. I think technology too. I think the more you're you know, the truth is that today the vast majority of individual reps are still selling 85%, you know, VX520, Z11, you know, pr- right. just standalone terminals. Right. So I think for those merchants, it's a little bit more realistic to have a primary and, you know, this one company. Mm-hmm. But definitely as you move more into point of sale and things like that, it's hard to find one processor that has a full suite of technology solutions. And, and also as you, as you move into newer verticals. Right, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. especially you know the, the the market is getting wider, and yep. we're, we're you know we're more be- segmented, more segmented. We've become much more of a service society. There's a lot more service sector stuff out there. Yeah, awesome, great question, Janice. Thank you for that question there. All right, our next question comes from Don. This is going to be a short answer from me. Uh, maybe Patty will have a longer one. I don't know, but uh, what is my opinion and Patty's opinion on the future of merchants accepting cryptocurrency and ISOs reselling it? Uh, my opinion is. None. So um, I am very much, uh, you know, I'm not a big believer in Bitcoin. I think it's, uh, you know, an entire cryptocurrency, in my opinion, is an entire industry making a bet that all governments of the world are not going to care about them and somehow <laughs> let them do whatever they want. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the last time that, you know, all the major governments of the world said, sure, you can just do something totally different that we don't want you to do and we're not going to make any laws against it. I don't know when that's ever happened. So my opinion is the whole cryptocurrency thing, in my opinion, is always going to be on the fringe just because in order for it to be mainstream, it would have to get legislative approval. And that's never going to happen because the government likes the U.S. dollar. So uh, that's my opinion. I don't, what do you think, Patty? Well, I, I do think cryptocurrencies have a place. Um, I, I see some some place for it, as particularly with the e-commerce. Sure. And um, with some people who just don't trust the government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of those types of people. Um, merchant sales, I'm not as I don't bullish. really. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not as bullish on ha- going out there and selling cryptocurrency. Sure. Right. Having that option to be able to do that. Right. Not a bad idea. But I would also yeah. say that you know the underlying technology, the blockchain technology. Oh, that's huge. That's huge. The I'm, impact that's yeah. going to have, I and mean, that's another discussion altogether. Absolutely. But I think that the impact right. of that's going to be huge. You know, to me, I and it's funny, I did a series of videos on uh, Bitcoin a while back, maybe six months ago, mm-hmm. and I talked about that. I said, you know, I look at blockchain like, you know, the internet. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a fundamental right. technology that's going to revolutionize things, but... If you build a crappy website on the internet, it isn't getting any traffic because it's a crappy website. Right. And so the concept of cryptocurrency and the idea of let's escape the government and let's just not, you know, okay, you know, I get it. But at the same time, I think that's a, you know, that's a shaky ground to build the technology on, you know. Well, you know, one of the things I've often, I've said that I have friends who are, who are big into cryptocurrency. And, sure. And I do too. And, and, yeah. and, and they're always like, oh, you know. When the you know when the shit hits the fan, you know I'm gonna still have my money, and I and my comment to them is really because how can you get it other than the internet? And if the shit hits the fan, right? Exactly. <laughs> to me, I feel I feel like you're gonna have you know if if the entire you know world economy completely crumbles, you're gonna have bigger problems than the app that has your cryptocurrency. Thank you very much. Right. So there you go. There's your answer, Don. This has been another episode of Questions from the Field. Thanks for listening in. Make sure you tune in next week more questions from reps and ISOs just like you. Okay, so this is Brandy Elich uh, with CrossCheck. Brandy, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, 
I was wondering, you know, just for everybody out there, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you and I, I know we've known each other for many, many years in banking as well as in merchant services. If you could maybe explain your career in banking and payments and, and sort of how you came to be at Crosscheck and your role there. There's so much that's evolved in the banking world and the cash management world since I started, which was actually in the early 80s. But I did start out um, in corporate cash management, which was mm-hmm. a pretty big thing in the uh, in the 1980s, early 1980s. And the yes. reason was that very large enterprises uh, were typically spread out all over the United States. They needed local depository banks. Mm-hmm. Um, each one of those banks, in turn, had to clear the checks for them. And some banks were particularly good at this. Um, they tended to be located where the... Uh, where the mail is delivered in mail hubs, places like New York and Chicago and Dallas and Atlanta and San Francisco and L.A. Mm-hmm. And so there were certain banks that evolved over time to become cash management specialty banks by using things like nationwide lockbox and, um, and control disbursement. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was particularly important um, in the early 80s because the interest rates were so high. I think the actually, the uh, if I recall, I bought a house when I moved to California, in 1981, I bought a house, and the VA rate was 19%. I bought a house that same year, and I uh, and I remember that being we, and my husband and I thinking, and this is the VA rate. Right. I know. Uh. So, so um, there was a not to you know not to exaggerate, but cash management as a specialty was a pretty hot career. Oh yes. Uh, in the in the late 70s and early 80s, and I, I'll never forget my first. The first time I was exposed to this, I was um, assistant treasurer of CIT Financial in New York, and we had a we had many credit line banks, which we also used um, as depositories. And then somebody came in and explained float to me the concept of float, which was at mm-hmm. the time was kind of like understanding quantum physics, right? <laughs> um, but you have to understand that um, in those days, you know, the checks were processed and they were um, put on airplanes and they were flown around the country every night mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they were they were presented either through the clearing houses which every major city had a clearing house or they were presented directly to correspondent banks and the big banks like for Chicago that were leaders in this had their own correspondent bank relationships and their own flights and so they were able to have what we call accelerated availability schedules right that were very important for corporate cash managers, particularly in very large enterprises. Mm-hmm. And they also had what was called in the early days remote disbursement, right. um, which which was somewhat corrupted when some banks used places like Guam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, for the most part, uh, that worked very well because um, it enabled the corporate cash manager to see what checks were going to clear today. Um, and I think I should also manage uh, mention that um, there, there were treasury management workstations out there. There was a, right. a, a very, uh, uh, they were extremely expensive. They mm-hmm. were um, typically over $100,000 for a large enterprise. And um, there was a very well-known one here uh, by Robert Wills called ICMS here in San Mateo that was kind of the leader in that. Right, space. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were a really large company, you would subscribe to something like the ICMS treasury workstation, You would, which would in turn connect all your banks around the United States all of which reported in their detail and um, aggregate reporting in a different format. So what what ICMS had to do was to take files from, say, 20 or 30 different banks, all in completely different formats, and post them to a spreadsheet. So the corporate cash manager could either pay down debt today uh, or manage their credit line or, in fact, invest the funds Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in a repo or something like that. So you can see it was a 
really a very um, kind of time-intensive and paper-intensive system. Um, but, you know, when interest rates were at that level, it was a very critical job in a large corporation. I remember calling on Chevron when I was at um, First Chicago, and I think they had 40 people in their treasury management group. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty big deal. I remember that as well, yeah. Um, and, of course, with remote deposit capture, that's all changed. And right. today... Um, you know, checks are imaged. There are really no clearing houses. I mean, there's the clearing house and there's the Fed, but there's no, you know, bank. There aren't local regional clearing houses anymore, right. um, and you don't need to fly checks around the country. And you can use um, with positive pay typically, and 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 of course, you know, there are, there are each bank has their own treasury management system where you can access all of the bank's products and you can manage your balances to a target and you can invest and you can do all sorts of other things. Um, so um, the, the need for a lockbox, I won't say has gone away, but it's certainly been obviated by ACH and less, and less important, and certainly like sure. Right. Yeah, so it's been, a, so it was a, I think, I think I'm accurate when I say it was a pretty hot career in the early eighties. I was, um, uh, I was a cash manager at Fireman's Fund Insurance Company, which was a, um, at that time a very major insurance company. And um, and then from there I went to Charles Schwab. I was the first cash manager at Schwab, and I had to. This was in the mid '80s where I had to actually set up. Uh, you know, I, I remember going out to banks and saying, you know, we'd like to have controlled disbursement, and like, it was really hard to get a bank to do this because mm-hmm. most of them didn't do it. I remember. Um, dealing with some pretty large banks, and they said, well, we'd have to build something for you. And, of course, we wanted to have regional disbursement banks. We didn't want to pay somebody in Texas with a check drawn on a New York bank. Right, you know? right. So, um, and then, of course, you know, we that was before there were PC-based ACH and wire products, too. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, I was constantly running upstairs to the uh, to the person moving the money, Jerry DiCepolo, to you know tell him, well, we did these trades today, and we're going to have to move the money today, and we had deadlines of, you know, 12:30 and that day to move the funds, and you know it was it was kind of an exciting, it was an exciting job, I uh-huh. have to say. Yeah. I don't think it's probably that exciting anymore. <laughs> no, but probably not. <laughs> but it certainly was then. Um, so how did that and, lead to crosscheck then? Um, I. Uh, I, well, as I said, I worked for First Chicago, which was, I think it's fair to say, was considered the leading mm-hmm. cash management, leading cash management bank sure. in the United States at that time. That was my beat and, at the uh, time. I remember that yes, clearly. And yes. it was, uh, they had a very academic focus because they were linked to via some consultants to um, the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And they went around the country giving seminars on cash management. So they, I'd say they were the leading cash management um, bank. And they recruited me when I was at Schwab. Um, to call on corporate cash managers, and I, it was just—it was just a wonderful place to work at the time. Unfortunately, the bank had issues, and they ended up closing all their regional offices, which was, a, I think, in retrospect, a big mistake. And then the bank was sold to NPD, right? Which was in turn sold to another bank. So that was uh, a fabulous place to work. I had a great boss, and um, and unfortunately, then I got the news. You know what? We're going to move you to Los Angeles, and I said, you know what? I'm not moving to Los Angeles. That's not going to happen. So. Just by an extraordinary coincidence, I got a call the next day from Wells Fargo saying, we'd like you to run half of our middle management uh, cash management sales group. And that would be half the branches and half of the RCBOs and some of the very large relationships like the state of California and things like that. And since I didn't want to move to L.A., that was really the only game in town at that point. And um, so I did that. And uh, and it was an interesting um, 
an interesting place to work. I was the fifth person in five years to have my job there, so that kind of gives you a uh, sense of what it was like. And um, and I did that, and but I was living in Sebastopol, which is a, in Sonoma County, and I was commuting to San Francisco every day, which today would be an impossible commute. And um, I got recruited by a small bank here in Sonoma County uh, to start a cash management operation. And I just, I was at that point, I was spending four hours a day at least committing to San Francisco. And I said, you know, I just can't do this anymore. So I went to work for this small bank, which was called National Bank of the Redwoods. And what made it unique and ultimately led to my path to crosscheck is that um, we have an, ext- uh, well, I don't know how familiar you are with Sonoma County, but um, it's a major tourist uh, destination. I think we get about six or seven million tourists a year here. Um, and, and incidentally, Patty, uh, 4.6 million of them come for the wine and the beer. So I'll just <laughs> throw that out there. Um, and, uh, but we have a really wonderful 100-year-old um, local bank called Exchange Bank. And uh, half of their profits go, it's owned by a trust, half of their profits go to fund our junior college, Santa Rosa Junior College, which is considered one of the top ten junior colleges in the whole United States. So nobody wants to take on Exchange Bank. They're, it's like taking on the, you know, the, the, the holy grail. And right. um, so, but the problem was that small, you know, new small businesses just couldn't get loans. They couldn't get the loans that they needed from Exchange Bank. And so one of the board members at Exchange Bank left and said, I'm going to start my own bank so we can give these poor people loans that they need to start their businesses. And that was a fellow named John Downey. And so that's how NBR got started. And um, one of the things they found out early on was that the merchants, many of the merchants could not get a credit card processing account. And again, we're talking about um, the late, uh, I guess the... uh, This would be like late 80s, 80s, early 90s, Yeah, that's right. right. Mm -hmm. And and particularly, there were a lot of entrepreneurial merchants who moved up here and... Businesses like Real Goods and Ukiah, and they literally could not get a credit card account because nobody wanted to process for mail order telephone order companies. The large telephone companies did this, and they put it on your bill, and they had such extraordinary fraud they all got out of it, and that started the one eight hundred number um, solution. But again, there was a great deal of fraud, and mm-hmm. so these, you know, most of these merchants just could not get a credit card processing account, and so. The CEO said, you know, there's got to be a business here. And to his credit, he um, went out and became a principal bank for MasterCard and Visa. Now, that's not hasn't been possible for many, many years. They don't want Right, right. They wouldn't take acquirers. small banks like yeah, that that's normally. Right. And then, man, right. the truth is that, you know, they're dominated by about six or eight banks that are today not only the largest issuers, but also the largest acquirers, which was right. certainly not the case back then. There were Most of the major acquirers were non-banks like First Data. So... Um, Anyway, so we had this in our portfolio, and we had no idea what to do with it. Uh, we had a, we were, the portfolio was underwater, and uh, just by an extraordinary stroke of luck, we got a call from an ISO who said, "I have a book of business. I need to place. I want to have a California bank. I want to have a principal bank. Um, it has to be somebody that understands risk, um, and um, uh, I can bring you this business." And uh, it represented about. It was, a, it was a business, it was a mail-order telephone order business, uh, which is called Card Not Present. It used to be called Card Not Present in that vernacular. Mm-hmm. And that particular group of merchants uh, was responsible for about 20% of all the chargebacks at Citibank. So that kind of gives you an idea of the importance of this project. Wow. 
So I uh, met with our board. I met with our auditors. Um, I flew to New York, and I met with Pete Hart, who at the time was the uh, CEO of MasterCard. Mm-hmm. He was extremely helpful, and he said, whatever you need from us, you know, we'll help you. Um, we didn't, definitely did not get that kind of uh, help from Visa. So we, um, we went ahead and did it, and sure enough, we were able to, over the course of time, we used a first data subsidiary called Shared Global in Texas to score every transaction. And by doing that, we were able to reduce the chargebacks from around 20%. These are things like the Dion Warwick Psychic Network and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. a big deal. Right? I remember. I it remember. Was a big deal. So um, we were able to uh, reduce the chargebacks from 20% to around 2%. Still was not good enough for Visa. They said, you know what? We want 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, so while we were wrestling with that, um, something else happened, which was that um, at that time, the largest um, ISO was a company called Card Service. Mm-hmm. And what this fellow did, Chuck Bertsloff, was he, um, it seems like an obvious thing today, but it certainly wasn't back then, is uh, he went around the country and in every single yellow pages, now don't forget, you know, this is before the internet, right, so right. people use the yellow pages. Um, in every yellow pages, in every you know, city in the United States, he had a header that said credit card processing card service mm-hmm. and an 800 number mm-hmm. so every small somebody that wanted to start a small business went to the yellow pages there was no internet looked up credit card processing and there was card service uh-huh. and uh-huh. so chuck was able to build this company into the largest iso and, right and it was uh, and it was it was subsequently sold in a couple of pieces to first data so um we got a call from a fellow who actually just passed away last week named joe kaplan mm-hmm. and Joe, uh, Joe called us up and said, you know, I've been hearing from MasterCard and Visa that your bank really knows how to process transactions. And um, I'm going to be leaving Chuck, and I'm going to be taking a few hundred of my best salespeople with me, and I need a bank to process these transactions. I'll do everything for you. All you have to do is board them on first data. So um, be you know, at that point, we needed, we really needed this. I mean, this was really a lifeline for us. And so we accepted the deal. And to his, true to his word, um, Joe did a fabulous job, and he built up this portfolio, um, and it was very successful. And then one day we got a call saying, um, guess what? I just sold my portfolio to the, large, the first publicly traded ISO, uh, PMT. And um, so I have a non-compete, so we're going to have to you know, we're going to have to part ways. So that was pretty devastating for us. But then um, very shortly thereafter, PMT was sold to Nova, and Joe's non-compete went away. And then Joe came back to us and started a – the first company was called, I think, Superior Bank Card. Right. And he right. came back to us and started a new company called Innovative. Um, and that was very successful. That and, was the one that he sold to Intuit, I believe. And he sold that to Intuit. That's right. correct, yes. So, um, so that was really a lifeline for us, and it um, – it, 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 it made our bank, it gave our bank a halo mm-hmm. reputation. And at that point, we were approached by West America Bank, which is a, I think, about a six or seven billion dollar, very, I think, very well managed um, regional bank here. And they said, you know, we've been trying to start a, uh, a credit card operation, and we just, it's, it, why can't we, can we just buy your bank? Because we know you know how to do this. 
And so MBR was sold to West America for five times book. And to give wow. you an idea, this is <laughs> most banks sell for one or two times mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. So this was really uh, an extraordinary event, and um, and it worked out well. So um, I, I have to say it had a it had a happy ending uh, in that respect. Um, so um, meanwhile, uh, I got a call from Paul Green, who um, is a Really, an extraordinary person, actually a charismatic person. Incredibly, who yes. Running, yeah, running Crosscheck. Crosscheck is today is I think we're about 35 years old. So this was about probably 15 years ago, and um, I was the banker for Crosscheck. And part of the reason was that um, Crosscheck is a payment guarantee company, which means that our business is managing return items, mm-hmm. which is about the last thing, the last type of client that a bank would ever want unless right. they understood this business. And so um, Paul was having a hard time getting a bank to understand their business, and I understood it. And we had another advantage, which nobody else had, which was we had a reader sorter. We had our own reader sorter in the closet, (laughs) in the break room, and we were a member of the clearinghouse. And we had our own courier vehicles, which no other bank would do. So every morning we would take our courier vehicle, we'd drive to San Francisco, we'd go to the clearinghouse, we'd get all the items, we'd drive them back to the bank, we'd open the door, feed them through the reader sorter, take all the crosscheck items and drive them to crosscheck and get them there by noon. Wow. Which <laughs> That's no bank in the United States could have done that. Right, and so, right. I mean, even today it would be difficult. So, um, in fact, I used to get a call from um, Gil Pena, who was our uh, cash manager saying, you know, it was like 12:30. She saying, "Where's the courier vehicle? We don't have that. We don't have the return items yet. We have to have those right now." And uh, so that's how I met Paul. And and Paul was um, extremely. It's hard to really convey his the force of his personality. But he was one of the few times in my life where I met somebody that was very charismatic. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said, "You need to come down here and work for us." And I said, "Well, what would I do?" And he said, well, I don't know. He said, well, probably, whatever it is, we'll probably change it in six months. But you know, if you want to come down, you can. So, And they probably change it every six months. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I ended up here. And, um, and uh, well, so then you, yeah, go ahead. it's go fascinating, ahead. fascinating. Well, and, and, and obviously, you've seen a lot of change um, over the years. Would you, uh, what would you say, Brandy, are the two or three biggest changes that you've witnessed in payments generally and merchant services in particular over your career? Well, certainly remote deposit capture. You know, they haven't really been, or this reminds me of an old story about the Texas banker who retired after 40 years uh, banking in, in West Texas and in the, in the starting in the 50s. And they asked, somebody asked him at his retirement dinner, they said, you know, what's the biggest change you've seen in banking in the last 40 years? And he thought a minute and he said, uh, air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> so... But um, but things like I remote deposit say, capture really yeah, have changed. I would say changed. remote deposit capture because, sure. you know, going back to my original kind of rambling about how checks were cleared, uh, remote deposit capture changed the whole game mm-hmm. um, where you don't need a local clearinghouse. You don't need correspondent bank relationships. Right. Um, all that stuff just kind of went away overnight. Now, it didn't really go away overnight because I tried to do this when it first came out and it just – it was just too hard. Mm-hmm. I, just, I fell mm-hmm. on my face because right. nobody wanted to understand the true implications of remote deposit capture, and there weren't too many people that were really willing to get involved in it. I mean, even I went. I remember our our processor, which I think was, I want to say it was FIS, and the account officer said, "This will never happen. You won't have to worry about this. We'll do all this." For yeah, you. yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, they just didn't get it. Yeah. Um, so I, certainly, remote deposit capture changed the game, and. Um, 
the other thing is the emergence of truly national banks now. So if you're a very large mm-hmm. enterprise, top 200 retailer, for example, you don't need to have uh, local depository banks in every city. You don't need to have right. cre- credit line mm-hmm. banks in every city. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't need a treasury workstation. And so that, that whole concept of ha- where you bank and how you bank has changed dramatically. Um, I think qu- along with that, although it, it was more of a coincidence, I think, is that you have these very large banks that are the issuers for credit card. And we're talking about, you know, the obvious suspects like Chase and City and B of A and Wells and Capital One and a couple of others, Key Bank perhaps, and U.S. Bank. And and they were always large issuers because it's a business of tens of millions of cards. You can't even think about being an issuer without having tens of millions of cards in the portfolio. Right. Um, but they slowly pivoted and became the largest acquirers, um, which was not a business they were interested in doing um, when I, you know, 20 years ago. And in fact, um, Patty might remember this. She Obviously, you have a better memory than I do. But um, in the early days, Crosscheck was the exclusive sole ISO for Citibank. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe. I mean, it's even hard to even believe this mm-hmm. happened. And we walked away from it. We said, you know, yeah, this is a lot of work, and you know, we're not sure we really want to take on the risk, and so we walked away from, it, which is, a, in retrospect, not a good decision. Right, right. Because we would be as, you know, we'd be a large Gigundo player, at this like point. Like a thesis or something like that. <laughs> well, but, and Citicorp also was one of Paul's early um, um, partners when he got into into the ISO business as well. Yeah, right? that was yeah. called Amcor. Yeah, yeah that's Amcor, right. Right, so, right. So. Um, well, at least, see, fortunately, Patty's been around long enough she can corroborate that I'm not making this stuff up. So. <laughs> well, let me, um, let, let me just ask you, though, because I, I, I know we're, we're getting a little short on time, and I, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about cross-check and, and the services you provide and how you work with ISOs and MLSs. Right. Um, we're a pretty arcane business, and it would be, I would say, almost impossible to start a business like this today. Mm-hmm. Um, we have two major competitors, uh, Telcheck and Surtigy. Um, our business is standing in in real time at point of sale when a customer, a consumer typically, although it could be B2B, uh, consumers buying a high-ticket item, right? Uh, which is typically a car. Mm-hmm. So we really only support about six verticals. But most of our business, certainly half, is new car dealers either selling cars or parts and service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the average new car, $35,000, you know, 10% down payment, um, and whether you've had the thrill of having a transmission rebuilt recently, especially if you have a German car, but it's, you know, it's five or six thousand dollars. So right. most Americans, uh, as you know, um, most of the wealth is concentrated in the upper quartile, and uh, there's no wealth in the lower quartile because those people are unbanked. And so you've got the two middle quartiles where people are basically living paycheck to paycheck with little or no savings. And so when they need to buy a car, um, this is a decision that cannot be put off. When your car breaks down. When the dog is sick at the vet, which could be a couple of grand, when you have to pay for a funeral, mm-hmm. somebody has to stand in a point of sale and and guarantee a check. And then car dealers don't want to take credit card because why would they pay three and a half percent to process your Chase Sapphire card when they're only making a one one percent margin on the business? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So there's a so there's a tremendous need for our product in those verticals not only approving an individual check, but in some cases we'll let the consumer write, say, four checks and tell us when to deposit them right. for the next 45 days. So um, we don't loan them the money. We don't uh, underwrite them. They don't pay interest. 
it gets a it gets the taillights over the curb and sells cars and mm-hmm. and that's our primary business and there's really nobody else that does anything like this there are things like care credit um right, things right. that are really sure. mm, i'd have to say uh we call them a debt trap where mm-hmm. the consumer just doesn't understand that if they don't pay it off in full in six in the first six months they're locked into a 26 percent mm-hmm. uh, you know interest rate uh, retroactive to day one so so we provide that service. It's a pretty tricky service. If we guess wrong in, in approving, authorizing a transaction, we eat it. Right. So if you write a you know, $10,000 check at a car dealership, which we do all day long, and you're, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, it bounces and we can't collect, we eat the check. Mm-hmm. So, um, and what happens is the, all the trend, we give the dealers imagers, everything is imaged. We take an image file, we ship it off to Jack Henry, we get the returns the next day. We keep the merchant whole so they never see a return item, and we push an ACH credit to the merchant. So we do, last year we probably did $3 billion in this space. So, okay. um, well, and the business is growing. So there's yeah, no need would, for this. Yeah, I, would, I think there's probably, uh, we were just talking about this just yeah. a few minutes ago yeah. about how many more big ticket items and areas right. where people are, are needing to have alternatives to credit card. Let right. Me. Well, it's just, it's it's all about cash discounting and these pretty truthfully. There's there's just no reason why a merchant should pay three and a half percent to clear a credit card transaction. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And right. In, in other yeah. parts of the world, of course, that doesn't happen. So, I think you're going to see more of an emphasis on people paying from their bank account, particularly with loyalty and rewards programs. Mm-hmm. And merchants are going to say, you know, we're just not. You just saw this with Kroger uh, this week, yep. where they said, you know what, no we're more not going to pay Visa to process right. uh, grocery transactions. It doesn't make sense for us. We have a one percent margin, and yeah. and you know, I've been predicting this for a long time, and I think um, I may even live long enough to see this happen. But I think you're going to see more, particularly the NRF members who have the National Retail Federation, right. That are moving in this direction of saying, you know what, if you want to use the credit card, you're going to have to pay extra for that because we want you to use our loyalty and rewards program, and uh, that's you're going to pay from your bank account. And then somebody like Crosscheck will stand in on those high dollar payments and process those. Okay. Well, Brundy, we only have time for one one more question, but I, I really wanted to get to this one. And we received questions from listeners about how they might go about evaluating ACH processors and what are some of the considerations. And I, and I might want to throw into there, we also, I also was wondering if you might be able to, um, as a follow-on, what, if any, impact has same-day ACH had on um, check services? Okay, well, you said a mouthful there. I know, so it's, it's really two and questions. I'm not sure I, I can know. answer this in a minute, but I would say uh, we haven't seen any impact on same-day ACH because all that means right now is that you get notification at five o'clock right. at the close of business, and you can't do anything with that anyway. That's kind of my, that was sort of yeah. my so sense about it. That doesn't make it. any sense, and this sure. goes along with a lot of the uh, what I would call propaganda from Nacha about right. this kind of stuff. Um, with regard to choosing an ACH process, that's a difficult question, and I'm almost certain I can't answer that in a couple of minutes. Um, well, just kind of give me your easy. thoughts. Sure, it's not easy because uh, most banks will not. Uh, they don't, uh, you know. There's what, four thousand, five thousand uh, bank commercial banks in the U.S. Um, most banks just do not understand the concept of ACH risk, and they don't want to understand it. Um, so I would say it's very difficult. If you're, you know, for if you're a small, I mean, this goes back to the early days where you know you're our bank. We we got approached by payroll processors uh, or health clubs or people like that, and we just couldn't understand that because you have to know your customer's customer. 
So, you know, it's sure. mm-hmm. it's very difficult to do this. It requires, especially now with the FDIC, is requiring that these banks know their customers' customers. Right. It becomes right. a really complex underwriting question. Um, so I would say it's, you know, certainly I don't think small banks really understand this. Mm-hmm. And the issue for a company like ours is getting to the attention of a very large money center bank. Right. Um, so there's no easy answer to this. Um, you know, if it was me, um, I would join NACHA because, in fact, that's what I had. I remember I remember when I was talking to Paul Green, I said, you know, I think I'm going to um, get my AAP credential because I already had the CCM credential. And he said, I don't think you, you don't think you need to do that. <laughs> And I said, why not? He said, well, I don't like Notch, and they don't like me. So I said, well, no, Paul, <laughs> let's be reasonable. Right. So I got the, got the a, a, uh, AAP credential, and I, and I did go to the Notch meetings. And I, so if, if I was a reasonably large enterprise, I would definitely join Notch yes, and just sure. go to the Notch meetings, and there's, there's a big one every year, and mm-hmm. then there's regional ones. And, those, and, and the, then you'll meet the people that understand ACH. Right. Um, and that's, that's, that would be my approach to doing it. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Brandy, this has been really enlightening. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, great stuff. It's always my pleasure, Patty. Okay. Well, listen, uh, enjoy the wine out there this season, okay? (laughs) Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Have a great one. Bye-bye.